The choice before us is simple. Come together on a bipartisan path forward or take us over the cliff. Oh, I bet they do that one. Abandon the extremism that is preventing us from getting things done or triple down on division and dysfunction. Yeah. Hmm. A vote today to make the architect of a nationwide abortion ban, a vocal election denier, and an insurrection insider to the Speaker of this House would be a terrible message to the country and our allies. I wonder what message they'll end up sending. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for what I hope is another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. It we may shall be, see. Uh, yeah, maybe a, a little bit too thrilling, unfortunately, <laughs> but welcome to it. Glad to have you here. We will get to, I think, <laughs> the... Uh, the disaster, ongoing disaster in the U.S. House before all is said and done today. We, although I tried to do that yesterday, never got to it. We because there's some other things going on. Yeah, too. just a few, unfortunately. Hi, Desi Doyne. Hi. Well, we spent uh, quite a bit of time yesterday on the uh, horrors of the Israel-Hamas war and specifically on the humanitarian horrors that are reportedly worsening by the hour in Gaza. As Israel's nonstop bombing campaign and blockade of food, water, medicine and other supplies to more than two million residents of the Gaza Strip continues well out over a week after the horrific surprise terror attack by Hamas in Israel killed more than a thousand on October 7th. So. If I can help it here, I don't want to spend too much time on it today as there's a lot going on elsewhere that. Like I said, I decided to push off yesterday when callers wanted to ring in on the tragic mess in the Middle East. But there have been a 
few noteworthy developments since we got off air. They just keep coming today, so I want to sort of uh, take note of them today. I I had focused yesterday, as we have been over the past week, on the Biden administration's clear and or behind-the-scenes efforts to push Israel and its hard-right prime minister, Benjamin Benjamin Netanyahu, away from their overly aggressive military response that has succeeded in killing thousands of of civilians and collectively punishing millions of Palestinians in Gaza, which is arguably a war crime, collective punishment, the collective punishment of people versus targeting only military assets. That is, in fact, a recognized war crime. And I realize that becomes a a far more difficult thing to deal with when military assets are purposely stationed amid the civilian population, as is the case with Hamas. But that and the inhumane blockade of basic living supplies to Gazans as they sit ready to roll into, uh, uh, as, as the Israelis sit, ready to roll into Gaza, and as the basic living supplies sit ready to roll into Gaza from Egypt, but for the physical closure of all exits, uh, well, it's resulting in a humanitarian crisis, which the Biden administration, I've been encouraged to see, seems to be working hard to try and solve, even as it is sh- showing its support for Israel and Israel's right to defend itself. So it's a, a tough, tough line to walk. It's a tough line to walk here in uh, reporting it, but uh, certainly for the administration, which seems to be trying to walk that line. And I've been uh, trying to both encourage them and hold their feet to the fire along those lines, sharing comments from both President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other officials indicating that they were pressing Netanyahu hard to force him to follow the so-called rules of war in the nation's response to the horrors of a week and a half ago. Well, after we got off air yesterday, there was a bit of what I will cite as, I think, encouraging news. Hamas released a video suggesting that they were prepared to release all foreign nationals that were being held currently as hostages. There are believed to be some 200 hostages overall, maybe more. It's unclear how many have citizenship or dual citizenship elsewhere. And Hamas has said essentially that they will release those hostages, but only when field conditions are right, whatever that means. It could mean just about anything at this point. But there was some encouraging movement there worth sharing. Also, the U.S. and Israel, according to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, quote, have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid from donor nations and groups to reach civilians in Gaza. They have agreed to develop a plan that will enable that aid. Biden will be traveling to Israel on Wednesday and, quote, will hear from Israel how it will conduct its operations in a way that minimizes civilian casualties and enables humanitarian assistance to flow to civilians in Gaza in a way that does not benefit Hamas, according to Blinken. 
U.S. officials said the uh, gain in, in, in these negotiations might appear modest, but they stressed that it was a significant step forward, and it sounds like it is. Biden will also be briefed about Israel's war aims, Blinken said. In every stop that he made after his trip to Israel last week, according to NBC's Abigail Williams, Arab leaders told Secretary of State Blinken that the U.S. must do something to solve the humanitarian situation in Gaza. That according to a senior State Department official. When Blinken called Biden after his meeting with Egyptian President Abdel Fatah el-Sisi on Sunday to relay their message on that, Biden asked uh, Blinken, his top diplomat, to go back to Tel Aviv to try to work out a plan, according to the official. What was uh, what followed that was then nine hours of negotiation between the U.S. and Israel, according to the uh, State Department official as the two sides hashed out the details of the plan. During the discussions about the agreement, Blinken and the U.S. delegation had actually set up next to the Israel prime minister's cabinet meeting. And every so often, Netanyahu apparently would go on over and the two sides would exchange papers as they tried to work through this. Blinken also reiterated to Israel's president today that every Arab leader he met in the region expressed the importance of them dealing with the humanitarian situation in Gaza. So to work our way towards peace, at least to work our way towards ending this nightmare, you got to get the uh, Arab leaders on board from the region. And to do that, you have got to deal with the humanitarian crisis, which we've been trying to say from day one on this whole thing. Well, then, on Monday evening, following those hours-long diplomacy sessions, Blinken announced that President Biden would be traveling to Tel Aviv on Wednesday for what would be the first-ever visit by a sitting president to Israel during a time of war. With speculation that Biden may want to be there for some important announcement, hopefully regarding that humanitarian aid to Gazans. He will also be visiting Jordan on that same day for meetings with King Abdullah, as well as the president of Egypt, uh, el-Sisi, and theoretically the elected leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. At least that was the announcement on Monday night. We'll get to some details there. All of which I am taking for now to be encouraging news, at least given the particular news that we've got to work with right now in this situation. But even that could change based on news that has broken from the region uh, just a few hours before airtime today. As AP is reporting, the health ministry run by Hamas said an Israeli airstrike on Tuesday hit a Gaza City hospital packed with wounded and other Palestinians seeking shelter, killing hundreds. If confirmed, AP notes the attack would be the by far the deadliest Israeli attack in five wars since 2008. The health ministry, again, it's run by Hamas. They said, so again, you know, take this for whatever it's worth. At, they said at least 500 people had been killed in this attack. Photos purportedly from the hospital that were shared widely on social video showed fire engulfing the building, widespread damage, bodies scattered in the wreckage. The photos, however, could not be independently verified by AP, they note. 
Several hospitals in Gaza City have become refuge, uh, refuges for hundreds of people, hoping that they would be spared from the bombardment after Israel ordered all residents of the city and surrounding areas to evacuate to the southern Gaza Strip. Hamas said in a statement that most of the casualties were displaced families, patients, children, and women. Israeli military spokesperson uh, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said there were still no details on the hospital deaths. With this initial reporting, he said, quote, we will get all we will get the details and update the public. I don't know what to say. I don't know whether to say it was an Israeli airstrike. So that was the initial reporting. Reuters is reporting that same story this way. An Israeli airstrike on Tuesday killed about 500 Palestinians at a Gaza City hospital crammed with patients and displaced people. Health authorities in the besieged enclave said they don't say Hamas health authorities. The strike was the bloodiest single incident in Gaza since Israel launched an unrelenting bombing campaign against the densely populated territory in retaliation for the cross-border Hamas assault on October 7. Arab countries, Iran and Turkey, swiftly condemned the attack. The Palestinian minister called it, quote, a horrific crime, a genocide, and said countries backing Israel also bore responsibility, likely a uh, shot at the U.S. The Israeli military said it did not have any details about the reported bombing, but that it was checking. It has previously accused Hamas of using Palestinian civilians as human shields. And then just before air, AP reports that Israel says, quote, a misfired Palestinian rocket caused the deadly explosion at the hospital, though the Hamas run health ministry is sticking to its own version of events at this time. So make of all of that what you will. In Washington, the Pentagon said it was aware of the reports about the hospital being hit, but it had no details. Pentagon added, quote, we expect all democracies like Israel to uphold the law of war. Meanwhile, health authorities in Gaza say at least 3,000 people have now been killed in the 11-day bombardment since Hamas militants rampaged into Israeli towns and kibbutzes on October 7, killing more than 1,300 people in those attacks, mainly civilians. And now a further update from AP reports that a senior Palestinian, uh, Palestinian official says that the uh, President Mahmoud Abbas has canceled his participation in that meeting that had been scheduled for Wednesday with President Joe Biden and other Mideast leaders. The senior official said Abbas was withdrawing in protest of the alleged Israeli airstrike on the hospital in Gaza the official spoke on condition of anonymity because the cancellation has not been formally announced. So clear as mud, I realize, but that's what we know at this hour. And in one more detail for now, AP also reports that another hospital in the southern Gaza city of Rafa, that's where near where the, the checkpoint into Egypt would be if, if it is opened to allow aid to come into Gaza, and foreign nationals, like hundreds of Palestinian Americans who happen to be there, uh, essentially trapped in Gaza right now, it would allow them out. Well, that other hospital in southern Gaza says it received an order to evacuate, even after Israel had told residents that they can't uh, that they can take refuge in that city. 
So who knows? In the South, Israeli airstrikes uh, have killed dozens of civilians in the South, and at least one senior Hamas figure was killed uh, on Tuesday, according to U.S. officials, who worked to convince Israel to allow delivery of supplies to desperate civilians there, aid groups and hospitals, uh, after days of failed hopes for opening to that to those supplies during this siege. So, as I say, lots of fog of war going on, but enough outlets are now reporting on the horrible hospital bombing, whoever was responsible for it, that I sort of wanted to put it on your radar here today, even as events are obviously changing and or moving very quickly in this god-awful, tragic disaster that continues to unfold right now. Well, you know, the fog of war, as you refer, refer to it, is is often used as a tool of propaganda. So mm. it is yep. really smart to withhold your judgment and don't share inflammatory content until there's more information about what actually happened. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why, you know, had I just seen that report on uh, Twitter, I wouldn't have carried it. Exactly. But all of the outlets, AP, Reuters, Washington Post, et cetera, were, were all carrying it, even though they all had slightly different versions of it. So I sort of want to give you a flavor of the different versions of it, where it stands as of now. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, initial reports can yeah. change quickly. So just, you know, hang on until there's actual information from can, legit sources. And they can be propaganda. So yeah. thank you for pointing that out. In the meantime, let's uh, move to, <laughs> I kind of want to say something lighter, but I don't know if this is or not, uh, some democracy and elections news from over the weekend uh, that I wasn't able to get to yesterday, both back here at home and uh, democracy and elections abroad. Yes, that even as the Republican majority here in Congress cannot even seem to successfully carry out the simple task of electing a House speaker to open Congress back up again after two weeks of it being shut down because they deposed their own Republican speaker. But we'll we'll get to that latest there in a bit. Uh, Louisiana's Attorney General Jeff Landry, a Republican backed by former President Donald Trump, has won the Louisiana governor's race over the weekend, holding off a crowded field of candidates and flipping the governor's mansion in the Deep South state from Democratic to Republican. The win over the weekend was a major victory for the GOP as they reclaimed the governor's mansion for the first time in eight years Landry will replace the current governor, John Bell Edwards, a Democrat who was unable to seek re-election himself due to being termed out. By garnering more than half of the votes in the election over the weekend, Landry avoided an expected runoff under the state's jungle primary system. That's where everyone from all of the parties runs at once. And then the two top uh, the top two vote getters go on to a uh, to a general election or you can call it a runoff unless one of them wins more than 50 percent of the vote in the primary in the jungle, jungle primary. In yeah. other words, the primary, if somebody gets more than 50 percent of the vote in the primary, yeah. then they actually win the election outright. Exactly. And that means that the primary was an actual election. And hopefully some voters understood that that was the stakes. Well, uh, there were 15 others who were running in the same race. So it was thought that none of them would win more than 50 percent. They were wrong. Uh, now, uh, Landry uh, did, in fact, uh, win that. He had been uh, in the spotlight due to his involvement and his support of Louisiana laws that have drawn a lot of debate 
They are hard right laws, including banning gender affirming medical care for transgender youth. Uh, the state's near total abortion ban that does not have exceptions for cases of rape and inc incest and a law restricting youth access to sexually explicit material in libraries, which opponents believe uh, is meant to target LGBTQ plus books. Landry made so he's a hard right guy. He made clear that one of his top priorities as governor would be addressing crime in urban areas. The Republican has pushed tough on crime rhetoric. And continuing uh, to support capital punishment. And apparently the voters of Louisiana want exactly that, at least those voters who turned out to vote in what was a primary turned out to be the actual election of yeah. the weekend. And they know that ten that Republican voters tend to turn out in droves in the primary. And so that was probably a surprise to a lot of voters in Louisiana. Now, in this case, the state Republican Party actually drew some controversy early in the race because it endorsed Landry over more than a dozen Republican opponents running for the job. Something I should note that would have been derided as rigging the election. Election. Had the Democratic Party done anything even close to the same thing? But that sort of thing apparently only really matters if you're a, a, a Democrat. Several other statewide races in Louisiana over the weekend for attorney general, state treasurer, secretary of state. Those all did advance to the November runoff. Republicans and, of course, Fox News are suggesting that the election of Landry to replace the only remaining Democratic governor in the Deep South is, in fact, a bellwether for GOP chances in the 2024 elections. Whether it is or isn't, of course, will not be up to Republicans or Fox News, but it will be up to voters. But to those who are somehow thinking that, you know, all of the GOP failures and embarrassments in Congress and the party's leading candidate for president who couldn't possibly win next time after his previous disastrous term, his wildly handled, mishandled pandemic, his two impeachments, his attempt at a stolen election, his four criminal indictments and countless civil verdicts against him. He couldn't possibly win. Well, you may be right or you may not be. What you shouldn't be doing is resting easy or on anyone's laurels at this point. Hopefully the election in Louisiana is a reminder of that. But Louisiana was hardly the only weekend election in which right-wing authoritarianism appeared to receive a bump from voters around the globe. Now, John Bell Edwards, the Democratic, the now outgoing Democratic governor of uh, Louisiana, was a rather conservative Democrat. But right wingers did well elsewhere, uh, not just in Louisiana, but they did el well elsewhere against leftist opposition and even well-established liberal progressive governments. Daniel Naboa, an, an inexperienced politician and an heir to a fortune built on the banana trade, won Ecuador's presidential runoff election on Sunday, held amid unprecedented violence that even claimed the life of a candidate. With more than 97% of the votes counted as of Sunday, electoral officials said Naboa, the son of the nation's wealthiest man, uh, received 52.1% of the vote compared to 47.9 for Luisa Gonzalez, a leftist lawyer and ally of exiled former President Rafael Correa. 
Naboa, 35 years of age, will lead the South American country during a period that drug trafficking-related violence has left Ecuadorians wondering when, not if, they will be victims. After results showed him victorious, Naboa thanked Ecuadorians for believing in, quote, a new political project, a young political project, an improbable political project. To that end, Naboa said he will immediately begin to work to rebuild, quote, rebuild a country that has been seriously hit by violence, corruption, and hatred. Violence erupted in Ecuador roughly three years ago with a rise in criminal activity linked to cocaine trafficking, and the government's inability to tackle it was laid bare in August of this year with the assassination of presidential candidate and anti-corruption crusader Fernando Villavincenzo. Since then, other politicians and political leaders have been killed or kidnapped. Car bombs have exploded in multiple cities, including the capital, and inmates have rioted in prisons. Earlier this month, seven men whom authorities identified as suspects in uh, Villavincenzo's slaying were actually killed while in custody. So it is bad right now in Ecuador, and it sounds like Ecuador has uh, voters there have chosen as close to a strong man as they can find, even as a 35-year-old political novice who happens to be the son of the nation's richest man. From South America to the South Seas, fortunes for the progressive government of New Zealand took a tough turn toward the right over the weekend as well. New Zealand voters delivered a forceful rejection of the Labour government there as a surge in support for the National Party delivered what analysts described as a, quote, bloodbath for the government and a new right-leaning era for politics in the country, according to The Guardian over the weekend. The result marked a dramatic change in fortunes for the Labour Party in New Zealand, which three years earlier, led by uh, Jacinda Ardern, secured a historic mandate, but they saw their uh, support dwindle in the face of rising living costs and the COVID pandemic. Speaking to a large crowd of party faithful at his election night event, National Party leader Christopher Luxon pledged to bring down the cost of living, restore law and order, as well as deliver better health care and education His address came shortly after Labor leader Chris Hipkins conceded that the party had lost the election. Analysts described the jump in support for the National Party there as a, quote, nightmare for the government. New Zealand's shift to the right ends Labor's six years in office, which coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic, the Christchurch mosque attacks, and the Wakari uh, volcano eruption Well, I blame Labor for that. Speaking at an election (laughs) night uh, event in Wellington, Hipkins, who became Labor leader in January after Arden's surprise resignation, said that he had called the opposition leader Luxon to congratulate him on the results. Quote, as it stands, Labor is not in a position to form another government. He said the result is not one any of us wanted. Acknowledging the natural disasters, the terrorist attack and pandemic that marred his government's term, Hipkins said, quote, I honestly think that the gods rounded up curveballs to throw at us. Well, just something again 
to keep in mind as the curve curveballs keep uh, piling up uh, coming into this country uh, as well in recent years and, yes, recent months. But the electoral news, I'm happy to say, was not, you know, all bad. It was not all okay, good. good for the, the hard right over the weekend. And here it was it was not good for them, uh, for the right wing, in a place that is really, really important to the ongoing worldwide fight right now underway for uh, the, the forces of democracy versus right wing authoritarianism in the in the place that it really arguably counts the most. Warsaw just edged closer to the EU over the weekend. On Sunday, opposition centrists and progressive parties led by the Civic Platform Party gained enough seats to form a coalition to oust Poland's ruling right-wing nationalist Law and Justice Party, which has led the country since 2015. The small-D Democrats won. The hardline fascist-leaning forces were turned out, at least for now. Civic Platform leader and former EU president Donald Tusk declared victory following the release of exit polling on Sunday in the wake of the highest turnout by far in the country's post-communist history. The majority of voters in Poland's general elections supported opposition parties to the ruling government that promised to reverse democratic backsliding and repair the nation's relationship with allies, including the European Union and, yes, Ukraine. The near-complete results showed as of Monday. The result was a disappointment for the governing party of the past eight years, which ruled with a so-called conservative, nationalist, and sometimes anti-EU agenda. Though it remains Poland's biggest party, law and justice lost its majority in Parliament, putting a centrist opposition led by Tusk in a strong position to take over power. It was among the most important elections in an EU country this year, according to AP. And the results have been anxiously awaited in Brussels, in Berlin, and other capitals by observers hoping that a step-by-step dismantling of checks and balances in Poland could now be halted before a turn toward authoritarianism that would be difficult to reverse. The official ballot count suggested that voters had grown tired of the ruling party after eight years of divisive policies that led to frequent street protests and bitter divisions within families and billions in funding held up by the EU over rule of law violations. Does that sound familiar? And this is in a country that has had a very direct a literal front-row seat to the battle between democracy and authoritarianism as it borders both Ukraine and, yes, Vladimir Putin's Russia. And they chose democracy. It's not a—the choice between democracy and fascism is not a a theoretical one or a merely ideological idea to Poland right now. It is very, very real to the Polish people— And Poland chose democracy with a huge turnout to do it at the polls over the weekend. So that, there's a good sign there for you. Hopefully that is the bellwether for next year 
that matters most, at least over this past weekend, but that could merely be wishful thinking. But I hope that it's the one that matters. It should not overshadow what happened elsewhere in New Zealand, in Ecuador, and back here at home in Louisiana. Should not overshadow that as a cold splash of water, a wake-up call for those of you under the impression that a dysfunctional Republican-led Congress and a criminally indicted Republican president that they couldn't possibly receive support from voters next year when we all turn out, hopefully, to the ballot box. The fact is no one knows. Democracy is an ongoing fight, especially right now, so please Don't fall asleep on this one. All right, let's take a quick break here, and we will, speaking of that dysfunctional Republican-led Congress and his choice, the criminally charged Republican president's choice to be its next speaker, we'll talk about that mess here in our country straight ahead. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. House is falling apart. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We'll get to the house in a second, but I just noticed, Desi Doyen, that I uh, forgot to mention that we got a Green News report coming up later <laughs> yes, this hour. We do. Just to cheer everyone up because Green News reports are always we nothing but always, fun always, always. and cheery. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the show. I think I said I'm Brad. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Republicans on Tuesday rejected Congressman Jim Jordan for House Speaker at least on the first ballot on Tuesday, as an unexpectedly numerous 20 Republican holdouts denied the hard-charging ally of Donald Trump the uh, GOP majority that would be needed to seize the gavel. More voting is expected, however, theoretically on Tuesday afternoon or evening. As we go to air, there has been only that one round that Jordan lost. There may be more votes, though, as Jordan works to shore up support to replace the ousted Kevin McCarthy for the job after a small, small, hard, hard right Republican faction moved to remove McCarthy from the post more than two weeks ago now. The House went into recess as the firebrand leader of the GOP's hard right flank struggled to take a central seat of U.S. power in what would place Jim Jordan of Ohio second in the line of succession to the presidency, if, in fact, he is successful here in gaining the speakership. After two weeks of angry Republican infighting, reluctant Republicans refused to give Jordan their votes, at least in the first round, viewing the Ohio congressman as too extreme for the powerful position of House Speaker. Jordan said afterward he was not surprised. He expected to do better in the next round. He said, quote, we feel confident 
we've all we've already talked to some members who are going to vote with us on the second ballot, he said. Of course, some of those members may have also agreed to vote for him only on the first ballot, but not on a second or a third or a 15th, as was required to seat McCarthy in the first place earlier this year. The tally with 200 Republicans voting for Jordan, 24 uh, voting for someone else, and all 212 Democrats voting for their own leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Well, that left no candidate with a clear majority with 217 needed for that majority. Though yet again, the Democrat was the biggest single vote getter here. As he had been, yeah, I think in all of the, uh, all but the final round of voting for McCarthy last January, if uh, if I recall. I think you recall correctly. It makes me laugh because it appears that, you know, Hakeem Jeffries has received more votes for House Speaker than anyone ever. In in history. In history. history. Yeah. Yeah. The GOP holdouts are reportedly a mix of pragmatists ranging from seasoned legislators and committee chairs who are worried about governing to newer lawmakers from districts where their voters back home prefer President Joe Biden over Donald Trump. But with public pressure bearing down on lawmakers from Trump's allies, including Fox News's Sean Hannity, whose producers actually sent out what are by and large threatening messages to uh, uh, some of these holdouts that Hannity would uh, end up leading a campaign to primary those members if they didn't get in line behind Jordan. You know, the way news hosts do on news channels. (laughs) Anyway, it's unclear how long the holdouts can last. Jordan was successful, after all, in uh, quickly flipping dozens of uh, his opponents, some of whom had previously claimed they would never vote for him. Uh, He was able to flip a bunch of them in just a matter of days over the weekend and into Monday. The threats coming from Fox News, I guess, didn't hurt. With the House Republican majority narrowly held at 221 to 212, Jordan can essentially afford to lose only about four votes. I say about. uh, That's what he would need to reach the 217 majority threshold. But that also depends if there are further absences. There was during the first round on Tuesday. I think there was one absent Republican. Yes, one Republican was gone because he had to go to a funeral and he was going to come back by Tuesday night. So Jordan could have won with just 216 in that first round. Uh, He was only able to come up with 200. On the other side of the aisle, Democratic Caucus Chair Congressman Pete Aguilar of California nominated Hakeem Jeffries on the Democratic side and warned that handing the speaker's gavel to a, quote, vocal election denier, which is putting it nicely, would be a, quote, terrible message at home and abroad. We are here because the House has been thrown into chaos. We are here because this hallowed chamber has been led to a breaking point by two dangerous forces, extremism and partisanship. The American people place their faith in us to tackle their most pressing issues, lowering costs, growing the middle class, and standing up to those set on delivering a national abortion ban. The choice before us is simple. Come together on a bipartisan path forward or take us over the cliff. Abandon the extremism that is preventing us from getting things done or triple down on division and dysfunction. A vote today to make the architect of a nationwide abortion ban, a vocal election denier, 
and an insurrection insider to the Speaker of this House would be a terrible message to the country and our allies. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, it would send an even more troubling message to our enemies that the very people who would seek to undermine democracy are rewarded with positions of immense power. We're talking about someone who has spent his entire career trying to hold our country back, putting our national security in danger, attempting government shutdown after government shutdown, wasting taxpayer dollars on baseless investigations with dead ends, authoring the very bill that would ban abortion nationwide without exceptions, and inciting violence on this chamber. Even leaders of his own party have called him a legislative terrorist. He once said, quote, I didn't come to Congress to make more laws. His words speak for themselves. When New Yorkers recovering from Hurricane Sandy needed Congress to act, he said no. When wildfires ravaged the West, destroying homes and businesses, and those residents needed disaster assistance, he said no. When the Mississippi River floods devastated the South and communities across state lines needed Congress to act, he said no. When our veterans were suffering from disease and dying as a result of their service to our country and Congress passed a bipartisan solution, he said no. When our ally in Ukraine looked to Congress for additional support to help defeat Putin, he said no. And just before Hamas's brutal terrorist attack on Israel, he said no to fully funding military aid for our ally. This body is debating elevating a speaker nominee who has not passed a single bill in 16 years. These are not the actions, these are not the actions of someone interested in governing or bettering the lives of everyday Americans. This is nothing less than the rejection of the oath that we swore to uphold as duly elected members of this body. If the goal is to continue a 30-year march to hollow out our democratic institutions, weaken our democracy, and embolden extremists, there's a candidate for you. If the goal is to continue taking marching orders from a twice-impeached former president with more than 90 pending felony charges, then there is a candidate for you. The world is watching, Mr. Speaker Pro Tem. Our allies in Ukraine and Israel are watching and waiting. So let's, so let's have this vote, but let's be clear. A vote for the gentleman from Ohio is a vote to turn your back on national security. It's a vote to turn your back on a bipartisan path to fund the government and avoid shutdowns, something we can only do if we reject his nomination. That was Congressman Pete Aguilar, Democrat of California, during his nomination for Hakeem Jeffries uh, on behalf of the Democrats, who, again, received more votes than anyone else to become mm-hmm. speaker. Yep. Now, frankly, you know, if there's concerns about sending the message around the world about election denialism, well, frankly, Republicans are already sending that message. They voted last week in their private caucus meeting for Steve Scalise to be the party's nominee. Which that, And that's supposed to be it. Traditionally, the parties in conference privately meet and, and then the caucus lines up behind whoever the majority of that conference voted for. But Republicans do not even accept election results 
of their own caucus <laughs> anymore yeah. unless they are the winner of those elections. And so this is now happening even in Republican versus Republican elections in their own conference. As Josh Marshall of TPM described it recently regarding the election denialism that Trump first unleashed in 2020, the virus has now escaped the lab and has infected the people who weaponized the virus in the first place. One holdout on Tuesday, a holdout uh, from uh, uh, Jim Jordan, Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, said Jordan's role in the run-up to the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol and his refusal to admit that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, that remained an issue for Ken Buck. He said, quote, Jim, at some point, if he's going to lead this conference during the presidential election cycle next year, and particularly in a presidential election year, is going to have to be strong and say Donald Trump didn't win the election and we need to move forward, said Buck. Want to bet, Ken? Want to bet he's going to need to say that? Others uh, said after Tuesday's first vote that they would simply they simply wanted to register their protest against him, but that they would be with Jordan on subsequent balloting. We will see. Jordan, who was first elected in 2006, also faces questions about his past. Some years ago, Jordan denied allegations from former wrestlers during his time as an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University who had accused him of knowing about claims that they were inappropriately groped by an Ohio doctor. Jordan has said he was never aware of any abuse, which given the mountain of evidence to the contrary, including some $60 million that were paid out to hundreds of victims by the school in response to this. Frankly, Jordan's denials here are impossible to believe. But maybe we'll get into those details on another day. Our friend David Dayan, the executive editor over at the American Prospect, wrote a very smart piece, as he always does, last week, uh, th this time on the madness and the idiocy going on in the Republican Party and their seeming inability to do the simplest of acts, like elect a House speaker. Uh, he wrote this, I think, after Steve Scalise had initially been elected by the Republican caucus as their nominee, but before it became apparent that Republicans do not even recognize the legitimacy of their own caucus elections anymore. And then Sc uh, Scalise, uh, you know, had to drop out of the running. So this was also before Joe Jordan would then be nominated, as he, too, is having trouble getting commitments for the needed votes to actually become the speaker which means that nothing is currently happening in the U.S. House, which, as I've noted, to be frank, uh, might be a lucky cooling-off period of sorts following the Hamas attack in Israel, at least if the reactionary disasters that were implemented after 9-11 by Congress are any indication. In any event, Dan wrote a short piece. It was smartly headlined, quote, In the future, everyone will be speaker for 15 minutes. <laughs> he says the numbers are simple. To become Speaker requires a majority of the House. Democrats will vote for their own candidate, Hakeem Jeffries. That leaves two, the 221 Republicans, out of which you'd need 217, given two current vacancies. At first glance, there is nobody alive and eligible in America today who is able to corral those 217 votes. 
We'll see if he's right about that. But he notes the era of atomized self-aggrandizement is upon us. There is no advantage in the Republican Party for reaching consensus among themselves, let alone the opposition. Republican members of Congress are essentially Internet influencers who dabble in policy on the side. And when faced with the choice, they're all too happy to give up the side hustle of policy in favor of influencing. The hardliners, rooted in anti-government principles, see the opportunity to grind the institution to a halt. The conflict is the intended goal, with nothing behind it. That's why, he says, this could really go on indefinitely. Caught in the crossfire are the millions of federal workers who are increasingly likely to be sent home without pay after the government almost certainly shuts down on November 17. And they may be there a while, writes Dayan. Any foreign aid to the White House, uh, that, uh, foreign aid that the White House wants to bundle together is just wholly unlikely to move. Border security funding, which the hardliners profess to want, won't move either. Neither will the sundry programs that need reauthorization immediately, like national flood insurance and, yes, the Federal Aviation Administration. Good luck with those Thanksgiving travel plans, notes David. He concludes, it turns out the country needs a minimally competent legislature to keep these exceedingly normal engines of government moving or some changes to government funding rules that account for political dysfunction and do not take out that dysfunction on innocent bystanders. We are seeing a preview of a kind of post-governance state, a taste of anarchy, he notes. Unfortunately, we've lost much capacity for revulsion. Well, not here, not our listeners. We are revulsed (laughs) on a daily basis. (laughs) True. So there is that. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyne and the Green News Report. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm looking through this, Des. Uh, it doesn't look good. <laughs> it never I, does. But there's no. some good news at the end, as uh, always. I don't know. I don't even know if that's good. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Earlier today at noon, the river was measured at negative 11.01 feet. That's the lowest ever recorded here in Memphis. Mighty Mississippi River hits new record low. The merger is an all-stock transaction that's valued at $59.5 billion. Exxon acquires a major fracking company, expanding its fossil fuel production. Plus, climate change is coming for bees, beer, coffee, and your chocolate. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news politics analysis and snarky comment then in june wildfires in canada sent giant plumes of smoke down the east coast turning new york's air into satan's butthole as opposed to new york's normal air actual butthole 
Yo, been away for five months and that's the best you can come up with? Oh well. Welcome back, Colbert. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, so ExxonMobil, which claims to be working really hard to cut their climate emissions, is spending $60 billion on more climate emissions? Yes, they are. Okay. But we'll get to that story in a moment. All right. First, the Mississippi River has hit a new record low for the second consecutive year due to persistent drought in the upper Midwest. And that is hitting farmers with higher costs to ship their harvest and import fertilizers. 60% of all U.S. grain is exported via the Mississippi River. Plus, low river levels are also allowing salt water from the Gulf of Mexico to creep upriver, contaminating drinking water supplies. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers now projects that the salt water plume won't reach the water system of New Orleans, thanks to emergency dredging and new infrastructure. But experts warn of an additional long-term risk. This problem will recur, and most most water pipes in Louisiana are made of lead, and salt water could leach toxic metals into the drinking water supply. Oh, boy. In Brazil's Amazon, rivers have also hit new historic lows, the lowest in more than 120 years of record-keeping after months of extreme drought and record temperatures. Cargo ships are stranded in port, preventing shipments of food, water, and medicine upriver to remote villages. Scientists say man-made climate change is a major driver of the extreme heat and the drought in both the Amazon and Mississippi. I guess it is. In other news, a suite of new studies warns that global warming is making it harder to grow coffee, tea, chocolate, and wine grapes. The first study calculates that nearly half of flowering plant species are at risk of extinction due to man-made climate change and habitat loss that is changing their growing conditions and because of insects. The researchers found that when temperatures get too warm and human development encroaches on their habitat, the number of insects that pollinate flowering plants drops by 60% as temperatures push them past their heat limit. So in a word, we're screwed. Another study warns that hotter conditions and the loss of pollinators will severely hit coffee and cocoa crops, which grow primarily in the tropics and rainforests under very specific conditions. Yeah, we're screwed. Climate change is also coming for your beer. A U.K. study found that rising temperatures and drought are making it harder to grow hops, a key ingredient in beer, decreasing both the crop's quality and its quantity. The study projects that hop yields will fall by as much as a third in coming decades. However, oil giant ExxonMobil plans to boost its profits from making the climate crisis even worse. Fantastic! Despite warnings from the United Nations and the world scientists that fossil fuels must be urgently phased out, ExxonMobil announced it will pay $60 billion to buy Pioneer Resources, a major player in the Texas fracking industry. Experts say Exxon's move to acquire new reserves is effectively betting that U.S. energy policy will not curb fossil fuels in any major way. On CNBC, Exxon CEO Darren Woods said Exxon expects oil and gas demand to continue rising. Mm-hmm. Fossil fuels, oil and gas are going to continue to play a role over time. That may, may diminish with time. The rate of that is, is I think, um, not very clear at this stage, but it will be around for a long time. Gosh, I wonder why it's not very clear. 
I wonder if you having spent millions of dollars to make it not very clear sort of helped. Finally, China is planning for a very different future than Exxon. In August, electric vehicles in China made up almost 40 percent of all new car sales. And Global Energy Monitor reports that China is on track to nearly double its current wind and solar capacity over just the next two years. China already invests more than the rest of the world in wind and solar development and is on track to blow past its clean power target five years early. Ah. And I thought China wasn't doing anything about climate change. I'm starting to feel like we've been lied to. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Everybody plays the fool sometimes. <laughs> There's no exception to no, there's not. And uh, you're right. That is good news about China. And it reminds me that this has been going on for years. The yes. Republicans have been claiming we shouldn't do anything because China and India aren't doing anything. Well, China certainly is. They're doing a lot. A lot more than the United States. About four times the investment that the United States is doing. And that's even with Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And they're kicking our asses, apparently, yep. on electric uh, vehicles. Yep. Who could have guessed it? But other, other than that, uh, we'll wait for Nikki Haley and, and uh, Ron DeSantis to show up at the next debate and, and tell us how out. China isn't doing anything. Yeah. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It's always an honor to have you here. Thank you. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible only due to those of you kind enough and generous enough to hit one of those donate buttons while you're there or go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener supported. Uh, and a review of the Green News Report will tell you why. Uh, <laughs> all right, we got to get out. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1987. That was the day that more than 100,000 people gathered in Paris to stand up against poverty and hunger. The gathering was inspired by Father Joseph Rasinski, a French Catholic priest. He founded the Altogether in Dignity Fourth World Movement, dedicated to addressing poverty. That day unveiled a commemorative stone to honor the victims of extreme poverty. The stone bears an image of two people, arms outstretched, releasing a bird into the sky. The stone's inscription read, On this day, defenders of human and civil rights from every continent gathered here. They paid homage to the victims of hunger, ignorance, and violence. They affirmed their conviction that human misery is not inevitable. They pledged their solidarity with all people who, throughout the world, strive to end extreme poverty. The site they chose to place the stone was significant. 
Second. The Trocadero Plaza in Paris is where the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was proclaimed by the United Nations in 1948. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights affirmed the basic rights of all people, including the right to form and to join trade unions, and the right to equal pay for equal work. Placing the commemorative stone at this important spot was a continuation of this legacy. In the years since then, on this very day, other cities around the world have commemorated replicas of the stone. Nearly 20 cities in France have dedicated stones. Cities in Canada, Mexico, Switzerland, Belgium, Ireland, Scotland, Great Britain, Italy, Poland, Portugal, and the Philippines have all placed these tributes. In 1992, the United Nations declared today, October 17th, the annual International Day for the Eradication of Poverty.